0: If you have your Bibles, please turn to the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. (coughs) Revelation chapter 22, begin reading at the first verse. John is writing and he says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street... And on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we ask you to open your word to us now. We do pray, Lord, that you would enlighten our minds, open them, open our hearts to receive your word. Give us, we pray, that gift of faith to believe your word, to receive it, and to act accordingly. Lord, we do pray that you would cause your word to be... Uh, powerful and effective in us in changing us lord and conforming us to the image of your son jesus christ in separating us from our sins and the foolishness of our own hearts and that we would be separated unto you and love you and love your people and give us lord we pray a desire an effectual desire to do that which is right before you to turn away from our sins So, Lord, we just pray you would bless us now and be with us. And we thank you for this wonderful passage of your word. And we do ask you to give us understanding in it. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations, the thoughts of all our hearts, would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, there's a lot going on in this final chapter, obviously, because it is the conclusion, not just of the book of Revelation, but I do believe that Revelation was the last book written in the canon of the New Testament, and the New Testament was written after the Old Testament, so we really are reading the last chapter of God's written word given to us. And it starts off continuing the vision of chapter 21. If you remember, uh, John saw there the New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven. He saw the new heavens and the new earth, and he's first five verses that we're looking at here this morning have to do with this city, but the river he saw that was flowing out from the throne. If you know, there's some interesting language used. He, said he showed me a, a pure river. And the idea, sometimes you, you see clear water. I know when I hiked up in the Trinity Alps, those of you who've probably been up in the mountains, sometimes you get high up and you just see these crystal clear deep pools of water in these mountain streams and uh, they're just absolutely beautiful and you can just look right to the bottom of them, you know, whether they're 10 or 15 or 20 feet deep and it's just, you know, really inviting one and you know, for me anyway, I wanted to dive in, but I didn't think it would be smart to be doing that by myself way up in the mountains. Uh, But just absolutely wonderful, Uh, a a river here you see is a pure water, so you just get an idea of what it looked like. Uh, we've seen things like this, like I say, for hiking. When I was young, long time ago, I remember uh, Lake Tahoe. You actually could take a cup of water and just dip it into the lake and drink it because there was purity there. There was no bacteria with all the building and houses and people and everything. Those days are gone, at least for now. Uh, But it was beautiful. It was crystal clear, but not as pure as this, obviously. This is the heavenly river. But note how he sees it. It's a pure river, and it's the water of life. So we're still dealing here with, I think, some symbols, but what, what a beautiful picture God uses to describe our heavenly home. He said it was clear as crystal. And then note that this last part is really the important part. Proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. That's a pretty clear declaration of the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is seated with the Father in his throne. But this water of life, and John lets us know, and God's telling us really here through through John, this water, what proceeds from the throne of God. And that's very important. It doesn't just happen. You know, we don't live in a chance universe. And he, God gives us this, this picture, and then he's going to talk about the, the tree of life. We haven't heard much of, except maybe in the early chapters of Genesis. The tree of life that Adam was barred from after he ate of the tree that had been forbidden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He and Eve ate of that tree. There was no, by the way, there was no prohibition against the tree of life in the garden. And if you remember what happened there, uh, they got thrown out of the garden because they sinned against God. God had specifically told them not to eat of it. Here we see the tree grows, and we're told that there's trees on either side of the river, yields its fruit. Very similar to Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel uh, chapter 47. We'll look at that in a, in a moment. But here we see uh, this this beautiful picture. And then we see it said in chapter or chapter 22 verse 3, there shall be no more curse. Well, you know in Ephesians, excuse me, Second Corinthians. It says, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, or let him be accursed. Um, so we're, there's no love for Christ. There the curse of God abides. And it's like, well, wait a minute, you got to love Jesus not to be cursed. No, if you're forgiven, you will love Jesus. And that means the curse has been removed. And so we see here this statement that there's no curse there. And if we read that passage in Corinthians... It says, if anyone loves not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be a curse. And the actual Greek word is anathema. Uh, and that means a solemn curse from God. It means there's nothing going to be in heaven except those who, or no one, I should say, that except those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, where Jesus' love is known, the response of redeemed people is that they love him back. And so we see this, this beautiful picture. Uh, in verse 4 we have this promise, they shall see his face. Talking about the throne of God and of the Lamb. And it says, and his servants, in verse 3, his servants shall serve him. And that word uh, actually can be translated, worship him. His servants, some some virgins do, do uh, translate it thusly. Um, his servants shall worship him. Because in heaven it is a place of worship, because we're going to be with the Lord. It says, and they shall see his face. There's an open vision there. Now we see through a glass darkly, Paul says, but then face to face. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Again, this reminds us of the phylacteries, you know, that God told Israel uh, they were to have his word on their hands and then on their foreheads. And the uh, Orthodox take that physically and they actually make little leather boxes and tie them to their foreheads and to their hands. I believe God's talking about the way you think and the way you act in those uh, commands. But it says, His name shall be on their foreheads. That's kind of interesting because we're going to be conformed to the image of God in Christ perfectly. You know, in Romans 8 it says um, that he is conforming us, that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So that's what's working, uh, that's the work that's being done in you. God is taking away everything in you that doesn't reflect the moral, spiritual, and ethical, and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and in glory we will be perfected when you die your spirit is perfected when you go to be with the Lord Hebrews says we've come to the heavenly Zion and and says to the spirits of just men made perfect so when you leave this life your soul your spirit will be completely purified taken to, to be with God and you will love God perfectly at the resurrection your body will be raised incorruptible reunited with your spirit and it says in First Thessalonians chapter 5 that we'll be saved body, soul, and spirit. Because that's what we are. God made us to be those three things, body, soul, and spirit. But there'll be no sin in us anymore. You will be incapable of sin. That's the, uh, the Latin, non posum Okay, It will not be possible to sin. And you're going to love the Lord Jesus perfectly. And so when it says that his name shall be on their foreheads, I take that to mean that when someone looks at you, they're going to see Jesus reflected. They're going to see the glory of God. And then in verse 5, we're told in the the environment of heaven, in the heavenly Jerusalem, there shall be no night there. It's daytime. It's light. It's a time for service and activity. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Uh, reigning in glory it doesn't mean that they're going to be ruling over each other or something like that i believe so we we have this in these first five verses just a simple vision of the glory and the beauty of heaven why does god tell us this now that's really the question why does he tell you this now you know now we have to fight for everything we we get as far as the christian faith is concerned in this world The world and the flesh and the devil all stand against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've touched on this before, but I think it's pretty obvious if we think about it. When we go to war, whether we're a soldier or we're talking about a whole nation or whatever, you need to have not just a vision of the battle and the battle strategy and what you're going to do when the enemy comes against you, You need to have a clear vision of both the victory and, I believe, the peace that comes afterward. And if you don't have those two things before you, you end up getting muddled up for years, okay, fighting the enemy, because there's never a decisive victory, because you don't have the goal of real, genuine peace in front of you. We've seen this. I'm not here to preach about politics, but we've seen this when you have a nation uh... that we happen to live in that doesn't have a clear policy of victory you know world war one excuse me world war two in particular we absolutely totally completely defeated germany and we absolutely totally completely defeated japan we didn't just tell them oh, we were at war with your government but not with you and so now we'll be an occupying army in your country, and you can resent us and hate us for being here. We went in and basically said, we now own you. We have conquered you. And then we handed them back their country. We gave them back their own government. We didn't enslave them. We didn't say, oh, now we're going to deport. other co- Now in the Eastern Europe that happened. And if you know about the gulags and all the things that were done by the Soviets won't blame the Russians, but you know the Soviets mostly were Russians. But uh, in the Soviet Union, they enslaved people. In the West, after we conquered Japan, we let them keep their emperor, their language, their culture. We rebuilt their factories. We extended to them the hand of freedom. And overall, the Japanese people love America. They know what we did. They understand that in in victory we were gracious. Same thing in Germany. Germans are you never too grateful for anything. <laughs> I'm German. I've got a lot of German relatives. Okay, Actually, they are, but they don't always show it, but or at least always, you know, emotionally. But the Germans were defeated, and then we rebuilt their factories, and we gave them back their culture. What they've done with those things, that's between them and God at this point. But we find those two nations are our strong allies. Other countries, we've gone in, and this is like I say, I'm not trying to be political. I'm trying to make a point here in, in, in our sermon today. In other countries where we've gone and not had a clear view of the peace after, it's because we didn't eradicate the evil. We wiped out the Nazi party, okay. But if you say, well, we need to wipe out Islam because it's pretty much the same if you understand what the Quran teaches, you'd be shouted down, you know, until the cows come home. But we, they have this evil ideology, and so it keeps spewing forth violence. By the way, the word Hamas in Hebrew—it's in the It's in the news a lot when people say, well, Hamas isn't really violent, okay? The word Hamas in Hebrew means violence. That's what the word means, okay? So when someone tries to say, well, Hamas isn't really violent, it's like that's what they named themselves, okay? And you see all the anti-Semitism, everything coming clear, okay? Israel right now, you know, to bring it up, it's like, well, what are they going to do about this attack? Are they going to level their, you know, deal with their enemies? Are they going to... Try we really your buddies? We'll see what happens. Need to pray for the peace over there. There's Palestinians that are just as innocent as any Israelis, and they're all caught in the maelstrom of this affliction. Something to be praying about. Okay, so what does that have to do with today? We're supposed to be, you know, talking about heaven. You have to have a clear victory in front of you. You have to have the idea that you're going to have a complete victory. If you play around in warfare, you know, it's a lot easier, as has been said, to release the dogs of war than it is to gather them back up. Okay. And so when you go to war, you better make sure you have a plan to win and you need to have a plan for the peace beyond that victory. All right. World War II, that's what happened. And that's why there was relative stability, at least politically and militarily, for quite a while. We've lost that. And that's why we see our country getting bogged down in wars, uh, because there's not always a clear view of victory. But that all being said... God here in Revelation, in the midst of the battle, because remember most of this book talking about, you know, you read about the, the beast coming out of the sea, another one rising up from the earth, a false prophet, the mark of the beast, people getting put to death because they won't go along with that, and the, the church uh, having to flee into the wilderness, and we see, you know, the false church robed gloriously, uh, riding on a seven-headed beast with ten crowns, drunk, uh, from a chalice filled with blood that's the blood of the saints we see this these horrible things going on and the saints fighting and it says actually at one point that the beast will make, make war against the saints and he'll overcome them so we've seen that we look at the middle ages and we see what happened to the church well the devil was successful in getting the word of God out of the hearts and minds of people the Bible wasn't being read you know someone talked about the Latin Vulgate you know and it, it, the Bible that was translated by Jerome in the fourth century. There were Latin translations before that. But in the West, they said, well, the, the Latin Vulgate has a lot of problems in it. So there's places where it's not translated too well. There's other places where it's, the majority of the Latin Vulgate is wonderful as a translation. Martin Luther, when he saw The Just Shall Live By Faith, he was reading from the Latin Vulgate Bible when he saw that. That's all he knew at that time. God opened his eyes. You know, the just shall live by faith. And he said it was as if the the door of heaven was open to him when he realized what that meant. The just, the one who is righteous, shall live by faith. But as one of my professors pointed out in seminary to us, the problem with the Latin Vulgate in the Middle Ages is that very few people were reading it. It was hard to get a copy because it had to be handwritten, and then they started putting restrictions on it so you couldn't read it without your bishop's permission, and to get an audience with the bishop, you had to generally be someone. Joe Peasant neither had the money nor anything else uh, to acquire it, but then national languages changed. You know, Latin morphed into the Romance languages, and when it was being, when the services were being read in Latin, people didn't understand fully or clearly what was being said. So they lost this idea of what we need to know to serve God. The Reformation happened when people had the Word of God in their own language in front of them, and they read it, and the Holy Spirit worked. One of the things they read was this passage. You have to have a vision of victory, and beyond victory, you have to have a vision of peace. In the middle of the battle, you know what you're fighting for. If you have to lay down your life, it's not, well, I'm going to lay down my life so that the war can continue. No, I'm going to lay down your life because you have a vision of peace and you know that this world is not the final place okay you belong to the Lord um, we see people willing to lay down their lives for others but you have to have a clear vision of why you're doing it uh, Paul talks about for a good man someone would even dared to die a fellow by the name of Slomo, what was his name? Ron he died on October the 7th when Hamas attacked uh, Israel he was an old man. He was a grandfather. I don't know if you've read about him or not. You'll probably hear about him in the future. He told his family to hide in their shelter. This is a true story. just read about it this week. And SloMo Ron, was, he was a grandpa, and he told them, he said, if they, if they knew what was going on, they figured it out, and they'd heard, and they knew Hamas was coming. And he t- he hid his, his uh, ch- children, grandchildren, and then he sat in his living room. He said, if they come in and just see me, They'll either spare me or kill me, but they'll think I'm the only person here, and they won't be searching the house for the rest of you. That's exactly what happened, and they did kill him, and he died. So when we see this, like, what a brave man. We'll leave him to the Lord. I don't know where he was at spiritually, but we, we read of things like this, people willing to lay down their lives. We had a vision. He, he, he loved his family. He wanted them to be p- at peace and to be safe, so he was willing to, to die, and he did. He ended up dying. He was a brave man. So... Uh, so we need to pray for those folks that went through all of that. But the point is, is that he had a clear vision, I think, okay, uh, that he wanted his family safe. He understood that. So he put himself in harm's way. The book of Revelation is telling us, if you've understood what we've been looking at as we've gone through this, you are in harm's way. If you think, like, I don't have to get into this battle, I'm just going to live my life, you know, hopefully I have a level of prosperity. and that. No, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you're in the battle. You're in the battle. And say, well, I didn't choose to be. That's fine. The war started before you were born. All right. It's been going on ever since Adam bit into that forbidden fruit. Okay, Actually, when Satan tempted him, there's been a battle going on. You're in the battle. And if you pretend like you're not, you're going to get hurt. I remember as a young man in the Nazarene church, we had a group of people, the guys, the brothers that came and sang. They were, a, I think it was a quartet. And I'm sorry, I can't remember their name. But one of them um, had lost his voice because during the Vietnam War, and this is back in the 70s, he got hit by shrapnel during an attack and it hit him in the throat. And Before that, uh, he had a beautiful singing voice. He could still sing but not very well, but he, he did, he sang to the Lord. But he, he told his story, his testimony was that when he was in Vietnam, he was getting ready to be shipped out. And they, you know, he was still in a combat zone, but he was getting ready to be shipped out, and there base came under attack and he said i'm leaving it was i was going to leave in like in a couple of hours he said i couldn't believe this was happening it was a major attack and he said so i, I just couldn't believe it I, my mind was totally set on leaving so i didn't take cover the other guys did he said i was like this can't be happening this can't be happening sure enough a, a mortar came in where he was and almost killed him but he survived and he said if i would have just realized okay i'm not out of here yet I still have a battle to fight. I would have at least taken cover during the mortar assault. Uh, So he lost his voice, but but he had quite a voice to give that testimony. Okay, and and, um, wonderful guy. And all together they sang quite well. The point is, is that you're going to be taken out of here, either at the end of your life or if the Lord returns before that's over. There's still a battle. You're still in the battle. And if you pretend like you're not, you're going to get destroyed. If you don't think that Satan's going to come against you with temptations in your life, if you don't think that he's going to do everything he can to destroy your soul, your soul is you, okay, then you're being very foolish. Okay, you have an enemy. He hates your gut, as we say, okay? That means viscerally, right to the very depth of your being, everything that you have. The enemy does not have friends, okay? He has dupes that he uses for a while, then he devours them. And we see a lot of stupid people that serve the devil, whether knowingly or unknowingly, just by their wickedness. The devil wants to destroy you. And if you think you don't need to be praying, if you think you don't need to be going and calling upon God and asking for protection for you and for your family, don't be offended. I'm going to tell you what I think the Bible says. You're acting like an unbeliever. And the Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. So don't be a fool, okay? Okay. Because you are in a battle. And the book of Revelation has told us this. We've seen, I think, a panoramic picture of history from the time that John received us up until the second coming and the end of the world. And then beyond that to the new heavens and the new earth. There is a real war going on. There is a real victory that's already happened because of Jesus Christ, who took away our sins, died on the cross, and then rose again from the dead. And he's now exalted at the Father's right hand, seated with the Father in heavenly places. And if you're in him, God says, you legally are already in heaven. But there is a battle to be worked out. It's not just with the world. It's not just against Satan. It's against your own flesh, your own lust, your own corruptions, your own desires to do whatever you want to do. And so we have to learn to fight against those things. And by God's grace, that begins to happen. But for the most part, we're not all that successful in pushing our sanctification ahead anytime we've seen like we're bad things have gone away if you're you know okay god gave me grace to turn from that sin and i did turn from it yes it's something i did had a good conversation with al about this you know about the lord works in us you helped me a lot understand that but we do it he does it in us but we do it and it's not wrong to say yes i did this but, like my brother Al also always says, it was by the grace of God, okay? It was the Lord Jesus. It was the Holy Spirit at work, okay? Didn't mean to pick on you from the pulpit, though. That's a, that's a good one, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, by the grace of God. So you do need to fight against the, the flesh. You do need to turn away from your timid. How do you do that? Well, you call on God. First thing to do is acknowledge you don't have the power to do this on your own. You're not going to be able to turn away from sin. You've got to go to God and say, Lord... I'm a miserable, wretched sinner. I have this vision of the future, and it's glorious. I really want to be there. And my flesh fights against me getting there. Okay, it's like if you were on a ship and somebody said, you know, somebody's drilling holes in the bottom of the boat. You'd want to find out who that is, I think, wouldn't you? Assuming you have a wooden boat. You've got an iron boat. Might not be much of a problem. Uh, Yeah, I guess they could still drill those, too. But if you've got somebody trying to sabotage the ship that you're on when you're trying to get somewhere... You'd find out who they are. Well, but God tells you who the enemy is in you. It's your sin. It's your flesh. How does that manifest itself? It's that leave me alone, I want to do what I want to do attitude. It's like, I don't care what God says in Scripture. I want to do this. Okay, that's what needs to be done. That's who's drilling holes in the bottom of your boat. That's why you're going slow and taking on water. God can help you. Jesus can get those holes healed up. But you better quit drilling them. You need to go to God and say, Lord, I need you to help me. I need to break with these besetting sins that I have, or whatever it is. Okay, if it's whatever it is, you know your own heart. You know, if I say besetting sin, first thing that comes to your mind, you, that's probably what you need to deal with. All right. How do you deal with it? You go to Jesus. All right. So what does this have to do with the texture? This is the vision that we get in the middle of the battle. That's the point. This is the fight. So here we see this river of the water of life. I want to go over this real quickly, all right? In John 10, 4-10 rather, Jesus, uh, speaking to the woman at the well, if you remember, he said, if you knew the gift of God, because remember he asked her for a drink, and then he said, if you knew, here's what he said, he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked of him and he would have given you water of life. So you see, it's not just in heaven where this water of life shows up. In verse 13 and 14, after the woman said, how are you going to draw water? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never more be a thirst. Is how it says in the old Geneva Bible. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus said, I'll satisfy your spiritual needs and you won't need to go look elsewhere to find it christ is the one who gives us that living life it's not just in heaven in the new jerusalem in revelation 21 verse 6 now he says and he said to me it is done john is writing about this is what jesus said it is done i am alpha and omega the beginning and the end i will give to him that is a thirst of the well or the fountain of the water of life freely if you're thirsty go to jesus he can satisfy your soul he can help you he's the one that does that. At the end of Revelation 22:17 toward the end, we will see this in a week or so. We read there uh, John writes says and the spirit and the bride that is the church say come. And let him that hears say come, talking about come Lord Jesus. But then it's interesting because then it says and let him who is thirsty come. So we look for Christ coming, but now there's a present tense promise. And Uh, whoever will let him take the water of life freely again this water of life that satisfies the soul in Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 47 1 through 6 Ezekiel saw this river coming out of the throne of God and it went out about every thousand feet it got deeper started it was at the ankles he sees a river flow there's the, the, the temple of God I said, it says throne, by the way, in Revelation. Um, but he sees the, the vision of his temple in chapter 47. And he sees a, a stream coming out from the temple heading toward the east. And as he it goes out, 1,000, it's at his ankles, 2,000, it's at his knees, 3,000. It's at its waist, 4,000 feet away, it's or cubits, rather. Uh, it was an impassable river of flood talking about the grace of God <laughs> the, uh, the farther it went the deeper it became And this is God's grace to us this river of life is living water it's the, the life in the spirit um, when the Lord Jesus Christ promised to give the spirit to those who trust in him that's that water of life that's that spring that, that supplies the life uh, Zachariah saw it. He said, "In that day, a fountain shall be opened to the house of David for the, and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness." So John sees this this river. Then he also sees the tree of life in the midst of the street of the heavenly Jerusalem. It bears twelve fruits, uh, mentioned also again in Ezekiel 47. Every month there's there's fruit on this tree. It never stops. Whose leaves it says are for the healing of the nations nobody's going to need healing in heaven so what's this talking about it's talking about present tense application of this because this heavenly jerusalem the benefit—it's a symbol for what we have in christ and what we will have this this tree of life was lost by the first adam's fall and now it's freely given to the redeemed you're going to be eating from the tree of life when you believe in the lord jesus christ that's what you're doing you know you're drawing your life from him That's clearly a present tense, or there is a present tense aspect to this vision, because in heaven there will be no need for the nations, that is the Gentiles, to be healed. They will be healed. Why now? Because this tree of life, who is Christ, will be healing his people. He heals all those that come to him. Uh, In Psalm 1, it says, talking about the man that fears God, does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. In verse 3, after it says, his delight is in the law of the Lord, it says, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. In that sense, we're, you know, blessed to have, we're kind of like trees of life. So in verse 3 it says, there's no curse is going to be there, so the throne of God and of the Lamb is there. Nothing there except love for Jesus and love for others. In verse 4, he declares that the saints shall have an unhindered, direct, full vision of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, it says, Paul writes, it says, But even to this day, when Moses is read, talking about when the scriptures are read in the synagogues, a veil lies on their hearts. Saying, why don't the Jewish people see Jesus as their Messiah? It's pretty clear when you read the scriptures. You can't read Isaiah 53. Well, they just don't read that chapter generally. But Paul says, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. He says, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, freedom. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror. The glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Lord the Spirit, or by the Lord Spirit. Actually, the, the Holy Spirit is called Lord there. A very wonderful passage in Second Corinthians chapter four, verse six. Paul says, "For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. Remember Genesis: Let there be light. It is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts." to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of god in the face of jesus christ again when you look to the lord jesus you change. changed how do you look at jesus from his word from hearing it preached, from hearing it read from reading it yourself from memorizing it taking it to your heart getting to know who he is he's exactly who he has revealed himself to be in scripture His name being written on their forehead signifies again that when anyone sees them, they will see his perfect image. It also means that he will be foremost in their thoughts, always, forever. In verse 5, we're told there will be no night there. The, the, The Lord God and the Lamb shall be the everlasting light of heaven. Now presently we have only experienced created light. God created the light that we see, all this. Scientists still haven't figured out exactly what light is, you know, for the longest time when I was growing up, I remember they were still trying to figure out is it particles or is it waves and uh, there's still debate over that at certain points, but uh, it's created light. So we presently see only created light, but then notice this, the Lord God himself and the Lamb are the everlasting light of heaven. You're going to actually experience God's presence. It's not going to be without a mediator. You're not going to stop being a creature, but you're going to have a vision of God that is so far beyond anything you can even begin to comprehend presently. Just wait and see. This is the picture that God gives us in the midst of the battle. The saints redeemed shall reign forever with Christ. So what does all this mean? Well, first, heaven is indeed heaven because we shall see God. You're going to be with Jesus, and that's going to be wonderful. Get to know him. Read the gospels read the whole bible find out who jesus is and you'll love him more and more and you'll look forward to spending eternity with him and we'll be perfectly fitted to be in his presence at that time forever and ever always and that's through our mediator. you can be in god's presence because of christ and christ has opened the way for us that's the third thing he's opened the way for us by his sufferings on the cross when he died for our sins and bring, he brings forgiveness and eternal life to us. You know, the word cross, a stauros in Greek, uh, it can actually be translated tree. It does mean cross. The earliest symbol for it, and even in the manuscripts, is, is a cross, um, like we, we understand. The Jehovah's Witnesses try to say, oh, it's just a tree, and then they go off on all kinds of weird stuff about that. Uh, but the tree of life is the cross of Christ. And... Here we see symbol this you know that's where life came to us. This tree is, is a symbol of the life in heaven. So if you're trusting in Jesus Christ for all your salvation, here's the point. You have a future. And the future is good. Whatever you have to go through here, whatever the war is here, whatever battles you're fighting now or have to face in the future. Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verse eighteen, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We have a glorious future. And yet right now, things aren't exactly the way we'd like them. Right now, we're working through the battles. We fight against the world, we fight against our own flesh, and we fight against the devil in all his wiles and ways. But Christ has called us to victory. Christ has already secured that victory, and it's being worked out in our lives. And what helps us is to have the word of God. And so God shows you not only what the battle is, he assures you of the victory. Elsewhere he says in Romans 6, sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. It shall not, sin's not going to win. And then we have this this vision of heaven, the water, the tree, you know, the, the river, the trees, the fruit, the fellowship with God and with one another. It's beautiful. It's glorious. We just barely get a, a sight of it, but God lets us see it, and we know, you know what? The future is good. It's okay. As Paul said, Paul saw it, and he said that uh, present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So, so praise God. It's all because of Jesus, so let's give him thanks and praise, and we'll give thanks to the Father in the name of Christ. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, our Savior, our Creator, our Redeemer, we thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for all your mercies to us. We thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you for this vision of heaven that you've given to us in the midst of the battle. So we pray you would be with us and help us now, Lord God. Help us to realize you have called us unto victory, Lord. You've given us the victory. Help us to understand what our weapons are to fight with, spiritual weapons. Help us to understand what the enemy is and who the enemy is. And help us to love you, Lord, we pray. Give us a clear vision of your love to us. And you, Lord Jesus Christ, who went through hell for us on the cross. You call us to pick up our cross now and follow you. And we thank you, Lord, that for us there is no hell in that cross. Even though the world might despise us, even though we might have to lay down our lives. But, Lord, we belong to you. So give us grace, we pray, and be with us. And help us to understand even more and more the future that we do have. And we ask you to bless us all. In this we ask, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.